we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 3. Now, I was tempted to move through verses 7 all the way down to 24 this morning, but I'm actually going to spend this week and next week going through those verses because there's quite a bit of theological density that needs to be respected, and I didn't feel like I could do justice to the text in one sermon. So just as a bit of a recap, the Nahaj, the serpent creature, this shining one has that is later revealed in Scripture to be Satan, has just tempted Adam and Eve to seize the fruit that he tells them is going to open their eyes, going to give them godlike power and independence and autonomy. They're going to know good and evil. And they've taken the bait and they've eaten the fruit. And so these next few verses describe what happens next. So I'm going to invite Faith up for for that reading. Hi. Uh, Genesis 3, 7 to 13. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the, God, the, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's move through the text. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. So the Nahaj was telling a partial truth. The eyes of your heart are going to be opened, but you're not going to kind of see things in a new light in terms of ascending to a godlike status. Instead, the eyes, their eyes being opened leads them into a new awareness of their vulnerability, their frailty, their limitation. There's an immediate... Um, impulse towards the recognition of their uh, guilt and shame and they immediately tried to cover their nakedness now a few weeks ago we talked about how when god sets up adam and eve in his garden there's four levels of relationship that god intends all humans to live in harmony within our relationship with god our relationship with other people our relationship with ourselves a sense of settledness and uh, um, centeredness on who we are and our identity in god and then our role or task within creation, our relationship to the earth. And so right away, you see a disruption on the level of our relationship with ourselves. All of a sudden, there is dis-ease. There's a disease. There's a dis-ease inside of Adam and Eve. They recognize sin and shame. There's an instinctive movement to cover. There's something wrong with them. Something has gone wrong. And so there's this disruption within that already we're seeing sin begins to twist and introduce. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. Now we see the first evidence of a disruption in our relationship with God. The first instinct is to hide. A very gentle, previously exciting, anticipatory sound of, oh, we hear God walking towards us, now is perceived as a threat. It's something they need to shield themselves from. And so they retract. So we're seeing this disruption in their communion with God. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man says, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now we see disruption at the level of relationships. Right? There, God asks Adam a yes or no question. Did you eat the fruit? It's not that simple, God. Like, the woman you put here with me, she actually gave me the fruit. I ate it. So I did eat it. But just saying yes, that would feel too simplistic. So I want to kind of broaden. I know, I'm not, say, I'm not trying to evade blame. I'm just saying there's, we got to spread the blame out a little bit. Right? So you see blame shifting right away, where Adam is not so subtly throwing Eve under the bus, but also God, right? It's the woman, she kind of did it, but it was the woman you gave me. I didn't ask for her, right? So already you're seeing a failure to take a fundamental responsibility. Very simple question, did you eat the fruit? Mm, there's evasion. And so we see, again, in our relationship with other people, and the harms that we cause other people and God, just an inability to be square and to, and to, and to be integral and to say, yep, just to square up and say, I did that, to take full responsibility. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. More blame shifting, right? Like, well, it's not just as easy as I gave it, like I, it was a serpent. He tricked me. That's where the fault lies. So everyone's trying to now evade responsibility for their actions. And theologically, this portion of scripture is really, really important because it sets up a major event that then colors the rest of the biblical story. And that event is called the fall, or it's usually referred to by theologians as the fall, capital F, meaning we all fall out of our relationship with God at an individual level and as people. But in Adam and Eve, as the figureheads um, of humanity, this was the fall. Uh, and Adam's sin, which introduces sin in a way that becomes pervasive to the human condition. And so the fall introduces um, not just sin as doing bad things, but sin as a kind of power, an influence that is mysterious, that constantly wreaks havoc along those four dimensions, interfering in our communion with God, our communion with other people, our sense of connection to the created world and our purposes within it, and frustrating our own sense of just internal peace and identity. Now, I want to spend more time on the effects of sin along those four dimensions next week, but this week, I want to spend time examining the earliest game of hide-and-seek that we actually have on record, right? Adam and Eve's first response is to hide from God, and if probably many of you have played hide-and-seek as children with your children or grandchildren. 
it's a really fun game. There's a lot of anticipation in trying to think of a hiding spot, going to that hiding spot, seeing if you can stay in that hiding spot for a few minutes or a few hours and cause all kinds of disruption and pain in your parents' heart. Um, but this is not that kind of game of hide-and-seek. It's not kind of fueled by this desire to be hid in order to be found, because that's kind of an exciting part, too. This is genuinely a hiding and wanting to not be found, a hiding and, and hoping that no one will seek you. Adam and Eve now perceive God to be a threat. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, which should be a sound of joyful anticipation, and that's now experienced as an existential uh, condemnation and threat. And although this is the first game of hide-and-seek that you find in the Bible, it's definitely not the last. It's not the last as you study history. In fact, the Bible and human history, what you see... And if probably if you study your own life carefully, you'll see this pattern playing out again and again. Hiding from God, hiding from God, hiding from God, and God seeking you. In fact, you could argue that playing hide-and-seek with God is one of the major pastimes of humanity. And I want to talk about seven ways, in terms of my own reflection on my own journey, pastorally as I've uh, walked life with people, read things, what comes out of this text. I want to talk about at least seven ways that we can hide from God. And I really hope that one of these will bring probably each of us to a place of saying, yeah, I, I can relate to that, and I need to be aware of that. And maybe we even find ourselves this morning hiding from God in a certain area of our life, or maybe in the totality of our life. And I think, because I think this text has a lot to invite us into, and a great hope for those who do perceive maybe God as a threat. So the first way we can hide from God is we can just hide under busyness or noise or distraction. I would lump all of that together. You can either intentionally or um, subtly and unconsciously decide to fill your minds and hearts and calendars with all kinds of clamor and activity. And part of that can be designed to sort of suppress the voice of God. It's easier to do, to do that today than ever because of technology. You literally have a supercomputer in your pocket that can provide endless distraction and noise and earbuds. And the opportunities for distraction and suppression are now almost endless. We've created a world where it's entirely possible to um, numb ourselves or to clamor over the soft sound of God walking in the cool of the garden. Framing that metaphorically in our lives, right? Where God is speaking to us through subtle impressions maybe, seeking to draw us out, but the jackhammer of clamor in our lives is just constantly suppressing our ability. And often that can be by intention. We don't want to hear those footsteps. We don't even want to hear the voice calling to us. I think that's part of what lies at the heart of our culture's valorization and championing of busyness. We're subtly shifting as a culture to socially reward those who are so busy they can barely think straight. Hustle has replaced intentionality. And the danger with this kind of culture is that you can become as a person very thin, very superficial, from being stretched too thin across too many activities to having your mind and heart not being centered and kind of f uh, flying and flitting all over the place, keeping all these plates spinning, 
getting social recognition and reward for it. Wow, how do you do that? That's so impressive. That's amazing. Such a high capacity person. How's life going? Oh, it's good, but crazy busy. And in the midst of that movement, we can be missing the voice of God. For many people, distraction is a very effective tool through which they can hide from God. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, I want you to do whatever is possible to help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. The Christian life is one of always learning to kind of as life, responsibility, activity, bloat happens and you kind of things fill up over time. You always kind of need these spiritual spring cleanings where you say, this isn't a bad thing in my life, but maybe it's becoming a distraction. And maybe out of pride or wanting to please people, I've taken on more than I, not that I, I haven't taken on more than I can actually handle because I'm executing, but I'm taking on more than is good for me in order to nurture that connection with God. And so it's not about necessarily always purging and letting go of bad things, but to learn to live with as few distractions as possible. Distractions are going to happen, but are we setting ourselves up to live with as few as possible? In the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus warns about ground, meaning uh, particular human hearts that receive God's word. They receive the kingdom. They're growing in the kingdom, but then over time, weeds come up and choke out this plant that God planted. And Jesus says, this is a metaphor for those who hear the message, but it's crowded or choked out by the cares and worries of this life, the lure of wealth, the desire for other things, distractions. And Jesus says the end result is no fruit is produced. So we can hide from God through noise and distraction and busyness. A second way we can hide from God is just through avoidance of Christian community. One of the effects of sin is that it drives us into isolation from other people. And this tends to happen, especially amongst Christians, because what um, kind of the, the dynamic of play is we avoid contact with other Christians who are in a good, healthy space in their relationship with God to the extent that at least they're not running or hiding from God. Because when you're, when you're in the place in your own heart where you are hiding from God, it's, it's really grating to be around Christians who aren't and are eager to talk about God and learn about God and share their own struggles with you. And it's very clear, they're not perfect, but they are moving towards God. And that's just, uh, it's hard to reconcile. And you're just kind of like, well, this just makes me feel awkward because it's sort of like holding up a mirror to what I am intentionally not pursuing in my heart. So I'm going to avoid church, Bible studies of any kind, prayer times, even connections with Christian friends that um, I aren't going to out me and say, hey, are you backslidden in your relationship with Jesus? But I'm going to avoid people who are just growing in their faith because I don't want to grow in my faith. I'm trying to hide from God. One of the signs that a pastor learns to look for is when a person begins distancing themselves from church or small groups or kind of any fellowship opportunities. That's often a sign that in some area of their life, they're hiding from God. And they don't want to be reminded of that when they come to church, when they sing, when they pray, when they connect with other people, when they're put into a situation where they're having to engage God through scripture or prayer. 
And I believe that lies behind a lot of people who are doing like the solo Christian thing. I don't need the church. It's just about me and Jesus. And um, there are understandable reasons for that posture of the heart. The danger, though, is that you can be deceived into thinking that you're not doing the whole church Christian community thing because you're just so committed to Jesus and those people in the church and all the dysfunction bring you down when really it's actually that these are people who are imperfectly pursuing Jesus and you've basically said to God, this is what I'm willing to do and I'm hiding these other areas from you and I'm just going to do my own thing and I don't want to be in contact with anybody who's going to poke a hole in that. Again, not even intentionally, but just by the fact that they are growing and talking and wrestling through things. So you have to be really careful um, when those patterns and those temptations begin to emerge to stop engaging in Christian community. Hebrews 10.25, many people know this, but this is why it's so important. We're called to not give up meeting together. And that doesn't just mean Sunday morning. It just means Christians as you have opportunity. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But you should encourage one another. We should be helping each other move towards God and his purposes for us. Third way you can hide through God is just through chemicals, drugs, alcohol, all kinds of self-medicating efforts are available to us today. And these can, these can be ways to numb out and to intentionally silence that conviction of sin in our own hearts that the Holy Spirit is seeking to put on the front burner of our minds and hearts. Now, often people turn to drugs and alcohol because of feeling overwhelmed by pain or trauma. That's definitely true, but I, I would also argue there's a significant spiritual component to that turning towards those substances as well. And chemical abuse can, in some cases, be a way of running away from God's voice and God's call on someone's life, right? Jonah uses a boat to try and get as far away from God as possible. But for you, it might be the party, could be the drugs, could be, you know, you could fill in the blanks there, but we can often use um, different chemicals as a way to just numb out so that we don't even have to feel our um, guilt or shame or sense of need for God. Number four, we can hide through skepticism. This is a pretty popular way today to hide from God. And this is where the posture of your heart, where kind of um, resentment, a frustration, cynicism, those kind of coalesce, they, get, they kind of form a soil. And what you plant in that soil is the fundamental question that the Nahaj asks Adam and Eve. Did God really say but it's not like, did God say that? It's, did God really say? Right? There's, there's a not-so-subtle tinge of cynicism. There's an eagerness to disprove what God said. And sometimes this is framed as using rationality as an armor. Um, sometimes it's simply framed as being a rational person, but it's not that. It's using cynicism and resentment and hard-heartedness and then calling that rationality and using that as armor and a shield to prevent, um, to, hold, to hold God at arm's length. And you can even posture this way like a seeker, like a truth seeker, but you can still have the heart 
I'm a deeply cynical and skeptical person, right? I've, I've met many people whose basic approach to questions of God and spirituality and life in the Bible are, well, I'm willing to believe, but I've got to be given proof or something needs to happen, right? Like I'm willing to believe God or that God exists or that the Bible is true, but this would have to happen. These would be the hoops that God would have to jump through. And if he, she, it does, then I'll believe, right? Which is holding God hostage, which is not a posture of faith. God's never going to honor that request because um, that is not faith seeking understanding. That is unbelief seeking justification. When people ask me, is it okay to doubt? Is it okay to ask questions? I'm like, Generally, yes, but it also depends on your heart. The doubt that honors God, the doubt that builds your faith is faith seeking to understand something that you currently don't. I'm wrestling with this. I'm reading this. I've been thinking about this topic. I don't really get it. I don't understand how I'm supposed to apply it or how it fits into my understanding of God's character or whatever, but I am going to go on the journey of learning and reading, and I'm going to humbly recognize that I'm going to have to do some work. And just because I don't understand something doesn't mean that God's wrong. It just means my understanding has to grow. That kind of doubt or questioning where we're trying to honor God through it is very, very good. But there's a different doubt that is very poisonous, and that's the doubt that is unbelief seeking justification or confirmation, where we actually are trying to, to find reasons to not believe. What we want is not to believe and trust God. What we're ultimately after is to show why we don't need to. I don't want to trust God. I don't want to believe God. And so I'm going to only look at information which confirms my and, and supports my predetermined outcome, which is God isn't real. God can't be trusted. God isn't for me. That kind of doubt as active unbelief, that is destructive and poisonous and today a lot of well that is what skepticism is it's unbelief constantly looking for information to justify itself it's not saying i'm willing to grow and learn and as i get greater and greater knowledge as god kind of doles out knowledge i'll move towards him in a posture of humility so we can hide through skepticism Number five, you can hide by not taking responsibility for your choices. That's right there in the story. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, right? But there's this blame shifting. Um, we can hide from God when we're always pointing the people at other people, uh, pointing our finger at other people, where we might feel God um, convicting us of particular sins in our lives or things that need to be amended and changed. And while maybe we're not saying it out loud, what we're kind of saying is like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that, God, but like you need to deal with this person. Or that's only a problem, God, because this person is in my life. I, I only have an anger issue because of my kids. So if you just fix my kids or my spouse or my coworkers, this won't be an issue. So yeah, I see the finger of the Holy Spirit pointing towards my heart. I'm just going to redirect it to the real source of the problem. That's a way that we can hide from God. We can hide from allowing God to actually do something in our lives because we're constantly looking to shift the blame and the responsibility somewhere else. Number six, you can hide through hypocrisy. And specifically here, I'm thinking of hiding from God 
through hypocrisy within Christian community. Uh, this is kind of like the fake it to make it Christian. Um, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word, which means play actor. It refers to the masks that a theatrical performer would wear to be a different person. And so this is when we act the part, we project an image of being a, a strong, vibrant Christian, whatever we think that means, whatever we think other people expect that to look like from us. And we do that so that we never actually have to confront or admit to other people our spiritual poverty or our brokenness. And so we can show up in all kinds of contexts, and instead of avoiding church community by not showing up, we can uh, avoid God by simply showing up and kind of going through the motions and pretending and projecting an image of something that we're not. And so we're sort of hiding from God in plain sight. And our relationships become uh, more and more superficial because when you play a role, it's a form of deception. And deception's exhausting because you have to constantly be keeping track of who knows what information and what information have I held back from certain people. And then there's just the exhaustion that comes from constantly playing a role instead of being able to say, this is where I'm at in an appropriate way. I mean, I, I understand, I'm not talking about coming in here on Sunday and then in front of everybody having to be completely vulnerable. I'm not saying there isn't a, an appropriate place for boundaries and appropriate vulnerability, but if all we're ever doing is wearing masks, that's a way of hiding from God. And this is a reason why many people don't go to church or they profess that they don't go to church because they're like, the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of people who are play actors. They wear masks, they come on Sunday, everything's bright and cheery, and then they go home and they live totally different lives. And that might be true. I hope it's not true of myself. I hope it's not true of many of you here, but certainly possible. But if you are a genuine Christian, the solution to confronting hypocrisy in the church is not to disengage from the church. Because all you're doing is creating more and more space for critical mass of hypocrisy to thrive and to flourish. The way you actually battle play acting and fake it to make it Christianity is to show up and to engage and model depth, authenticity, and growth. And that can be hard when you do that for the first time in a small group when everyone else has been a little strategic in their projections and they're posturing towards each other. It can be challenging on Sunday to connect with someone and be the only person out of 10 that someone has said, how's it going? And you say, oh, not that great this week. And, and they don't even hear that because they were just expecting fine and they've already gone on to the next person. Oh, how's your day going? So that can be awkward to really take ownership and to say, I'm just going to try and be as honest as is appropriate in this context. And if I'm honestly doing great, I'll say it. And if I'm not, I'll say that too. A challenge to younger people who, generally speaking, younger generations, at least these younger generations, value authenticity and genuineness more than kind of projecting a particular image. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young church leader, and he says, I don't want anyone, I don't want you to look down, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but I want you to set an example for the believers in speech, in how you talk, in conduct, how you behave, in love, in faith, and in purity. And part of what he's saying is that you might not be part of a 
perfect church young people. Don't let that discourage you. Don't leave the church. Don't start your own super pure, uh, perfect little young adult church or youth church. Be an example to everyone else. If everyone else is wearing masks, don't put on a mask. Show up without a mask and show other people that you can live an authentic, genuine life before God. Be an example. Let old fogies like me learn from you. I think that's a really awesome challenge. And lastly, we can definitely hide from God through religion. Or I've also included there moralism. And by moralism, I just mean um, having a moral code, just trying to be a good person. It's good to be good, nice to be nice. And this is sort of reflected in the story of, um, the part of the story where Adam and Eve, you know, they, they eat the fruit, they realize their guilt and shame, and they try and cover themselves. They put fig leaves on themselves. And that's kind of what religion is. Religion is any system. I'm using that term very broadly. It's any system where we, through our own efforts, try and cover our own guilt and shame. And that is definitely a way that lots of people try and hide from God. Now, that might sound strange to someone who doesn't consider themselves religious or Christian because they might be thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Aren't religious people the people who are most committed to not hiding from God? Aren't religious people like the people who are, like they love God and they're super committed to God? And as scripture unfolds, one of the really challenging truths that you're going to discover is that's not really the case all the time. In fact, you can be super religious and very moral and ethical and be very, very far from God. Right? There's a difference between being committed and surrendered to some kind of abstract code that you've decided this is important to you and you're going to live with integrity towards this and being committed and surrendered to the living God himself. It's a difference between being committed to the rules and the rule giver. It's, it's a difference as a parent or a grandparent. It's that sense of, my kid isn't just committed to the rules of the household. They're actually committed to me. Because you can be committed to the rules. You can just do the check marks. But you can feel as a parent, my kid, we're not on the, there's no communion here. There's no connection. They're executing, but they're, we're, we're not in relationship. And that can be, that's often how religion is used. It's used as a mechanism to avoid our need for God. Right? If, if you think, the basic, the basic point of Christianity, be a good person. Love people, be a good person. If that's what you think the point is, and then I can define what good and loving other people is, and I can do that, well, I don't need the Christ and the Christianity part. I'm a good person. I'm nice. I try and be aware of my own limitations and weaknesses and try and improve. I'm about self-improvement. I have found all different kinds of sophisticated ways to take fig leaves and cover myself and, and doll myself up. I don't need God. That's what religion offers people. And that's why religion is dangerous. And, and, and even the commitment to be a, a good person or to think that what God wants from us is simply to be a good person. That's why it can be dangerous. Because if we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can do it, we can essentially say, God, I don't need you. Right? And that's, pr- that's kind of the same thing that Adam and Eve are doing in taking the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. 
I want to live independent of God. I'm a good person. I'm not murder or anything. I'm not like rejecting everything that God stands for. I believe in God, and I think you should be a right person. I'm not a murderer. I don't steal. But we're st- you can, st- can you see how you can still hide from God? You can still show up to church. You can still show up to Bible study. You can still help the poor. You can still say prayers, but your heart can still be far from God. I mean, the, the real scary texts on this are all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the New Testament where they are super religious, super committed, super zealous towards, they would say, God. But Jesus says it's actually to your own traditions, and he shows them how they're using religion to actually keep God far away. Prodigal of the uh, story of the prodigal son is really instructive here as well, right? Father with two sons. The trick of the story is at the start of the story, you're like, oh, I know what the prodigal son is. It's that jerk of a younger kid who asks for his father's wealth, basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want to take your inheritance. Goes and squanders it on wild living. What a prodigal, wasteful, selfish, lost son. But what's the turn? The turn in the story is who's the prodigal son? There's two of them, right? Your Bibles are wrong for their heading, the story of the prodigal or the prodigal son. It's sons, plural, the lost sons. Because you find it at the end of the story, there is an older brother who is dutiful and who stayed and who wasn't as brazen as to say, I want, your, I want you dead, dad, give me your inheritance. I'm going to go and spend it on wild living and prostitutes. He's a good son, but he is equally far from God. It's clear by the end of the story that he is holding the father at arm's length and that he is fueled by just a different expression of self-centeredness than the younger son. And so Timothy Keller writes this, neither son loved the father for himself. Both sons were just using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, serving him for their own sake. And what this means, he writes, is that you can rebel against God, and you can be alienated from God two ways. You can break all of his rules, or you can try and keep all of them very diligently, which is a very shocking message. Careful obedience to God's laws may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. We can hide from God through religious ritual, commitment, or just the bland, often vacuous idea that, well, I just want to be a good person. Those are different ways of saying, I'll take it from here, God. I don't want you in my life. I don't need you in my life. I can self-improve on my own. So we see this reaction in the garden, Adam and Eve, to hide from God, but maybe what we've kind of seen this morning is this isn't just a one-off story. It repeats through the Bible. Whoops. It repeats through your life. It repeats through my life. We are finding all kinds of ways, and we're very creative at seeking to hide from God. But can we actually do it? Right? That, that's one of the tension points in the story. Can you actually hide from God? 
Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jeremiah 23.24, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Psalm 139, the psalmist says, If I were to say to myself, Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark for you, and he's speaking to God. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So part of what might not feel like good news, but it is good news, is that despite all of our attempts to hide from God, you actually can't do it. And so it's an exercise that the Bible says, just, just give it up. You're fooling yourself, and you're not fooling God if you think that you can run from him and hide from him. So that's all the ways we hide. Maybe there's more, but those are maybe some of the principal ways. But a, the real grace note of this section of scripture is that there's, it's not just the bad news about how we're all hiders. There's such good news that there is an actual secret. That despite all our persistent efforts to hide, God seeks. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? One writer says, God pursues Adam and Eve. Not out of ignorance, right? It's not like God's like, Duh, where'd they go? I can't find them. It's not that. He asks a question and pursues them to draw them out. There's a gentleness there. There's a grace. They perceive God as a threat, and he's trying to signal to them, this isn't a threat. He's not storming through the garden, ripping up everything and saying, where are you? He's walking. He's calm. He's calling them out. And this is one of the reasons why when you hear the idea that basically all religions teach the same thing, you, you just have a little theological spider sense go off, being like, burp, 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 burp. I don't think that's true. And this is one of the reasons why it's not true, is because Christianity is different from every other man-made religious ideology because it reveals a God who seeks and saves the lost. Every other religious system is about these are the things that you need to do to access God, to get to God in this life or the next, or maybe over many lives. Only Christianity says that's a futile effort. And you know, and actually, the message of Christianity is more provocative than that. It's, you're actually not even seeking God. You're hiding from God and running from God. You might be chasing a different idol. You might be chasing your own religious system that you can control. But there's actually no one outside of God's grace who actually genuinely seeks God. We're all finding ways to actually hide from God. There's a mountain metaphor, right? You think of the mountain, and most people think, well, God's at the top of the mountain, and all these people are going up, and it's foolish to think, well, which way is the right way up the mountain? It's like, as long as you get to the top, right? So the Buddhists can go up this side, and the Hindu can go up this side, and Christians take this switchback trail, and, but they're all going to God. But that metaphor is not a biblical metaphor. Because the Bible's picture is God comes down to rescue us from the valley and to hold out a hand and say, where are you? We're hiding in the valley. We're not trying to climb up the mountain. We're trying to get as far away from the mountain as possible. And God comes down into the mountain and says, where are you? Why are you hiding? At Christmas, we celebrate the God 
who comes from heaven to save us, who meets us, who seeks us, even when we're hiding, even when we're self-deluded into thinking, I'm actually undercover, like God is not noticing this stuff, like I'm actually, I'm pulling the wool over his eyes. Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's good news. And so this morning, are you tired of hiding? Are you tired of the toll that running from God or hiding from God through any of these means, maybe many of them, all of them, are you tired of the toll that that is taking on your body, on your mind, on your spirit? I want to invite you, whether you are a Christian or not, to stop hiding from God and listen to that voice because there is grace and mercy waiting for you. When you hear the voice, where are you? Why are you hiding? It's not a threat. It's actually a divine invitation to come home. Let's pray. God, I would ask that through your spirit and your word, you would reveal to each one of us an application for this message, that you would show us different ways, and maybe it's just one particular way in the season of life that we're hiding from you, God. And maybe we're hiding because sin has twisted our perception such that we actually think that you are a threat to us when you're the actual only source that can save and redeem us. So help us not to give in to that deception, but to take time to listen for that voice calling us home and leading us to Jesus. We give you thanks for his grace. We give you thanks for the miracle of Christmas and the incarnation. As we move towards uh, this new Christmas season, God, may the glory of Christmas dawn on us in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand and sing with us. Joy, joy to the world, the Lord is come. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth.
Just remain standing. Two announcements before I send you off for the benediction. Number one, just a reminder for those of you who are going to be